Some of you found out last night that I'm departing from the outline in the uh, bulletin a little bit by not addressing the Mosaic Covenant yet. That's going to be treated later. Otherwise, we're going to roughly follow the order there in the Covenant of Grace section, page 14. Before we get uh, into our lesson today, I want to remind you that we have used this covenant formula, as it were, I will be your God and the God of your seed after you and you will be my people. But that's a summary of the covenant blessing that God promises throughout all of his covenanting with us. And I want to uh, just reiterate that by reading, before we begin, several scriptures for you from the Old Testament in particular. When we come to the uh, New Covenant, I'm going to be reading the same formula for you in the New Testament. But for now... I've just selected some passages from the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. This is how the uh, Jews... uh, A little loud. uh, I'm getting some feedback. This is how the the Jews divided the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So here are uh, passages out of each of those three divisions of the Old Testament that have this formula. Genesis 28-21, Jacob telling of bringing his bones back so that I might come again to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God Exodus 6-7 and I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians we have I won't read these but in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 five times uh, the Lord says, I am the Lord, your God, in the Ten Commandments, claiming covenant lordship over the people of God when he gives these commandments. Leviticus 26.12, And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Deuteronomy 29.12, Then he may establish you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, the prophets, we have many places with extended uh, examples of this, like Isaiah 43. But here's one from Jeremiah 31 of the New Covenant promise. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You can see that this flows directly out of the covenant. Uh, But elsewhere you see, even when the covenant word isn't invoked, you should see this as flowing out of the covenant, the main blessing of being in covenant with God. Ezekiel 37, 23, They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all of the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Zechariah 8.8 And I will bring them to dwell in the land in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. Hosea 1.9-10 And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for they are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Sons of the living God. 
Paul interprets this in Romans 9 as referring to the Gentiles being brought in to be numbered as my people. Those who were not my people now are my people. Now we have the writings, 1 Chronicles 17, And you made your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Ruth 1.6, this is you know, one of these uh, most beautiful passages of Scripture. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to return from following you, for where, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Right at the very heart of the covenant, isn't it? Ruth was claiming God as her God. Now Psalm 21, one, excuse me, 22.1 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Now think about that. It is my God that he calls upon, not just God, but my God, my God. I, you, know, you are my God. I have claimed you and we are in this covenant league, but why have you forsaken me then? And of course, we know why in its fulfillment in Christ on the cross. Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Well, it goes on. I've just selected some that uh, point out this uh, so-called formula because when you read them over and over and over in Scripture, you see that this is part of the underlying fabric of Scripture and part of that fabric of covenant. And we've seen that uh, already uh, throughout uh, and we're going to see it more clearly when that promise is more explicitly made to Abraham and to his seed in uh, the next section. But let me just summarize briefly with you what we talked about with the Adamic covenant and mention a few things I failed to mention last night. First of all, the Adamic covenant was a covenant of works. And we, along with the larger catechism, found that the essence of that covenant was personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, but particularly personal obedience. It was demanded of Adam that he must obey. Now, the rudiments of covenant are found with Adam. We saw some passages where the word covenant may even be attached in Scripture to the Adamic uh, revelation. We saw in Romans 5 where uh, Adam is set up as a type of Christ and the new covenant is uh, shaped by being modeled on the Adamic covenant, particularly in that Adam was a public person. What he did is what we did. He represented us, and his action uh, had consequences for us. But likewise, Christ's action has the uh, utmost consequences for us as well. And of course, the act of obedience of Christ is prominent in that, and we'll talk about that further later. But the rudiments or covenant are found with Adam. You have three things in particular. Stipulation, and that can be just, you can use another word, requirement. But a stipulation of the covenant is what the Lord commands. So there are these stipulations. You must do this. There's a promised blessing for fulfillment of those stipulations. When he personally obeys perfectly, perpetually, there is a promised blessing. But if he fails, there is a curse attached to this. So it is a death-sanctioned covenant. In the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. 
So the stipulation of Adam is the law written on his heart. Adam was created in covenant with God in that as a creature made in the image of God, the law was written on his heart and on the heart of all of his descendants. And that law is the law of the covenant Lord who makes demands on all the peoples of the world to obey that eternal covenant. That's what we saw in Isaiah 24. There is an everlasting covenant, a perpetual covenant, by which all the peoples of the earth will be judged. Because I ask you to think about that, what is the basis for judgment on the last day when God will judge the secrets of all men's hearts? What is that basis? And the basis is the law written on their hearts, even for those who don't know the uh, biblical revelation. They do know the demands of God. Romans 1, uh, that, that very important passage, asserts that as well. Romans 2, Paul says, the law written on their heart. They have, and it will be the basis of their judgment. But you see, it's a law which is a stipulation of a suzerain that he's placed on man and made a demand. You must do this. And that is a covenant act. So Adam had that law written on his heart. But he had a special probationary command as well. And that is the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was a special stipulation which precipitated the fall. It didn't, it's not that God pushed him into it. I didn't mean that by precipitated. But it, it made very clear that there was a particular commandment now before Adam. And it, it held before him a test. Will he keep this commandment or not? It made explicit God's commandment in this way. But also in the stipulation, you see, was this personal obedience. Do this and you will live. In the day that you don't do this, you will die. So there was personal obedience. And what's interesting is when you look at the Westminster Standards on chapter, the Confession of Faith, chapter 7, verse 2, the, the phrase, do this and you, and you shall live, taken from the law of Moses, is used as the proof text to establish the covenant of works character of the Adamic covenant. So that personal obedience, you see, is required and that life flows out of personal obedience. Now, those were the stipulations. The promised blessing is not explicitly given by God's words, but God has placed in creation two elements of, of blessing which hold forth a promise of a satisfactory passing of the probation. The first is symbolized in the tree of life. It's not that the tree of life was a magical tree which gave life, but it was a tree representing the continued enjoyment of life by Adam in paradise. As long as he had access to it, it was a sacramental sign and seal of continued life. And our covenant theologians very freely talk about the tree of life as a sacrament. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that they use that term, and I think it's proper. What is a, a, a sacrament except a covenantal sign and seal? And that's uh, how it functioned for Adam, you see. He had free access to this sacrament. And it wasn't taking the fruit, just like taking the bread and wine, does not magically itself 
corporeally communicate uh, the thing signified. But there is still a union of the thing signified with that uh, sign and seal. So that as long as he had access to life, it represented and sealed to Adam, continued uh, life. And life means enjoying God and living before him and that God would be his God. So the promised blessing Adam already enjoyed and yet he could lose it as we find out after the fall. So he had the sacrament of life before him in the tree of life. But the second sign and seal, and again this is called a sacrament of the covenant with Adam by our theologians, is the Sabbath command. You see, the Sabbath was a sign of that rest of God, but also held forth the uh, promise of eternal rest when Adam passed successfully the probation, the test of whether he would break God's covenant command or not. This is understood more fully later when Sabbath is picked up and more fully uh, understood in this way, but you have the kernel of that there in the original revelation to Adam so that he would understand somewhat, but adequately. Uh, we, of course, don't know what God told him privately and isn't recorded in Scripture, but he would know adequately that there was a promise of life and rest after passing the test held in the Sabbath command. After he did his work, he would enjoy rest. And so there were promises of blessing held forth for Adam if he passed by uh, meeting the stipulated requirements. But also there was the threat and the curse, and it was very simple but very express. You shall die in the day that you break my covenant. Now, one thing I didn't mention last night that really needs underlining, and I, I uh, I, I bet you already picked this up. When Adam broke that covenant, he uh, transgressed that commandment. The real character of that sin was turning his back on his covenant Lord and choosing another. You see, God's authoritative word came to him And the character of God being his king, his suzerain, is that his word will interpret reality for him and he will follow it if he is to live. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is a truth that Adam knew in his heart. And you see, Adam could claim, O God, my God, because he was in covenant bond with him. And yet when Adam renounced God's word as authoritatively interpreting what the tree would do and accepting the word of another, he substituted that other as his liege lord. Now in the Middle Ages, this would have been clearer to people to understand this because they had liege lords. You know, you swear fealty oaths to liege lords and if you act against them, if you somehow betray them by taking up the banner or or if you were a knight taking up your sword and fighting for some other liege lord, it became much clearer that you were betraying your liege lord, your covenant lord. 
But you see, that is what's happening with Adam. He has made Satan now his god. So that it's, it's quite interesting, you know, that Satan is now called the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. 4. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, Jesus says. Most remarkable, isn't it? Jesus acknowledging that Satan was the ruler of the world until he would complete his mission. Yes, indeed, the ruler of this world is ruling this world. And yet now he's going to be cast out. And his covenant headship will be undermined. His lordship will be undermined and he will be cast out and he himself will be destroyed, as Hebrews 2 says it. Ephesians 2.2, the ruler of the prince of the air who has control over the sons of disobedience. You know, the remarkable thing about the temptation of Jesus, uh, when uh, Satan took Jesus to the top of the temple, the cornice, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, all these kingdoms have been given to me, and I can turn them over to whom I wish. Jesus' response was not, no, they haven't. That's, that's absurd. You're just a creature. You're not the king of this world. It's remarkable that he didn't just contradict him, isn't it? Well, he didn't because it was true. And in a sense, it's not true because God has never relinquished his ultimate sovereignty, has he? I mean, the book of Job makes that very clear. But in a sense, man has chosen Satan as the king of this world and as the covenant Lord. So that Adam was saying, you are my God. I renounce the lordship of the Lord God. And you see, this, this is what's happened with Satan. But of course, Jesus knew that he would take his, Satan's kingdom away by force, ironically, by himself dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, being granted all authority on heaven and on earth, and being the new covenant Lord over the whole world. All authority in heaven and earth. Now he is the liege Lord, and he is the covenant Lord. He, his is the name of our God, you see. So now the great switch has taken place again in the gospel. So you see the real test there is whether Adam will continue to call God his God or whether he will substitute. And he did. And that is the real heinous character of taking that fruit. It's not simply taking of the fruit, but it is betraying God's lordship and renouncing it and choosing another whose word would be authoritative for him. By the way, that, t that particular test that Jesus was tested with, uh, whether he would uh, accept the kingdoms of the world at the hand of Satan, remember what it was all about. What, would Satan, what does Satan require of him? If you will fall down and worship me and claim me as your God, renouncing God. Now, the parallels between the temptations of Christ and the temptation of Adam is pretty well known. And I just remind you that the parallel there of the second Adam, when he, he was tested, it was the same issue at stake. It was the same, who will be your covenant Lord issue. 
Well, then we have, of course, in, in Genesis 3.15, the first announcement of the gospel. Most remarkable, because of the grace of God, it's right here in the midst of the curse that God injects a promised blessing to overturn even this curse that he is pronouncing. So God comes to Adam and Eve in judgment and pronounces the curse upon the serpent, upon the woman, and then upon Adam as the federal representative. But in 3.15, this is all I'll read here, I will put enmity between you and and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And from the very beginning, we've understood that to be the first announcement of the gospel in Christian theology. And here is the great promise that the God of this world would be overturned and crushed and his rule would be put to an end by the seed of the woman. So here we have the promissory character of the covenant of grace introduced. And at this stage in Revelation, it is a promise. God has not accomplished this yet. It must take place in history. And yet it was a promise that the people of God could believe in. And of course, it's, it's not re- unusual to interpret man immediately in verse 20, after the judgment is pronounced, Adam, demonstrating his faith in the, in the promise of life in the seed of the woman, renames the woman from a woman to Eve, which can mean life or mother of the living. It's sometimes interpreted that she is the source of life now. From her will come eternal life because she was the mother of all the living. So this promise of covenant blessing has now entered in that God would overthrow the covenant lordship of Satan and assume his own lordship again in the gospel promise. Well, the uh, record of the work of God in the period between Adam and Noah, of course, is fairly sketchy. And to interpret it means to understand how genealogies work. It is to understand, uh, to see the two great lines of the seed, the seed of Cain, which uh, produces human glory and does not lead to the glory of God, whereas the line of Seth leads to men who call upon the name of the Lord, Genesis 4:26. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and that phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, you can find elsewhere in Genesis 12:8. Abraham, at that time Abram, erects an altar, and he called upon the name of the Lord. It's a way of worshiping God, but also claiming his name. You are my God, calling upon him as his covenant Lord. Later on, we'll see that the baptismal formula to invoke the name of the Lord upon us in baptism is actually a covenant action and it should be understood that way. We are invoking God's name upon the person baptized and we'll trace that out in uh, scripture later. But here you find this calling upon the name of the Lord as a covenant act to now claim him as your covenant Lord. Genesis 26, 25, another passage where that occurs as well to call upon the name of the Lord after making an altar. An act of worship, but an act of 
of liege claim. I claim you as my covenant Lord and I call upon you as my God. So you see this is uh, uh, the son of Seth, Enosh. Later on also you find this phrase of walking with the Lord. This of course was Enoch. He walked with God in Genesis 5.22. He walked with God 22.24. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And the way you really should read that in such a condensed narrative, it doesn't give you a lot of details or every phrase is really important. I think the way you should take that is Enoch walked with God, so he was not. It, it flowed out of his walking with God that God gave him the, the uh, ultimate grace by uh, saving him from death and conveying to him immediately uh, resurrection life. Now, whether he has a resurrection body, I don't know, perhaps. But the point is that he entered into the promise of life immediately. So, and it flowed out of the fact that he walked with God. And so you see that God was not absent from the world until Noah. But his lordship was still being uh, claimed by certain people. And he was choosing them for himself and arranging for himself a testimony of his enduring faithfulness of that gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. And then that line of Seth works out until we come to Noah. And so that's to whom we will turn now and talk about the Noahic covenant. Do you have any questions before we get? That's a bit of a summary, a lengthy summary of the Adamic uh, material, but it gets us to uh, the revelation of Noah now. Genesis 6. Well, I always like to make emphasis of the uh, supernatural intervention where God says, I will put in the seed between the woman. Good. Yeah. It's a sovereign intervention. Good. And that's, that's great. Yeah. In Genesis 3.15, the emphasizing the, I'm doing this for the tape, emphasizing the, that God takes the initiative in introducing the enmity and accomplishing the redemption. And and the reason is, is we, as you see, these are the kind of elements that are in seed form when the covenant of grace is announced. But then God adds to it and it grows. And this is how we should see the organic unity of the covenant of grace throughout Scripture. The unity consists of the, the essential elements are always the same. That God is going to take the initiative and we are the beneficiaries and there will be another who accomplishes this for us. We have a great substitute for us to receive the benefits of being in covenant with God. It must be accomplished for us. Somebody must obey for us. That is added later. And so these elements are added, but there's this core unity of the covenant of grace throughout. It doesn't change. Even though you have additions and other aspects of revelation added to it for other purposes. Yet it doesn't change that core. So in covenant theology... It's the main benefit of covenant theology is you see the organic unity of Scripture. And we can't emphasize that enough in our day and age because the disunity of Scripture is what people assume, particularly in critical scholarship. And I think this provides that core unity that, that certainly uh, there are other aspects of the unity of Scripture, but this is one that's really at the heart of Scripture. Right? You mentioned uh, the dispensational tools before. 
Not very much. Actually, uh, the question is, what do dispensationalists do with the New Testament teaching of Christ's lordship on heaven and on earth? Uh, so far, I haven't read many people who've dealt with that, those texts very specifically. They often just sort of avoid it. However, the so-called progressive dispensationalists and these are dispensationalists who are looking more like covenant theologians despite themselves, are moving away from classical dispensationalism because of that particular point. They are recognizing the current lordship of Christ more, and because of that they are moving away from the older formulations of dispensationalism. But it, in my opinion, it's a real problem for their system. Because, of course, in classic dispensationalism, the kingdom was offered to the Jews, they rejected it, so it was taken away, and it was not implemented, and will be implemented only later in a millennial era. But for now, we have this intermediate uh, plan B stage when God, it, it's almost like he had to do something, so he gave the you know, gave grace to the Gentiles, but it wasn't planned. It's not prophesied, it wasn't planned, uh, apparently. It's a problem, and this is part of why dispensationalism seems so confusing to people. Uh, and I, th I think it's a, a place where we can help them, and really press them, because to me it, it seems, I hate to put it this way, but not quite Christian. <laughs> you know? I, I, it just seems so strange to me that, that they wouldn't see those very obvious passages. Now, of course, some versions of dispensationalism wouldn't read that verse in Matthew 28 that I'm referring to, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. They won't read that because that's not for our era. There are some versions of dispensationalists that won't read the Gospels because that's for the Jews in the Old Testament era and not for our period, so they won't even read it or preach on it. They won't read or preach on any gospel. But there are a lot of varieties of dispensationalism. But we differ, and in an important way. And I think, I think uh, to put it positively, I think we have something really lovely to offer people in dispensational camps, to offer them the glory of Christ's rule and yes, he is, uh, but, you know, the, the destruction of Satan is pretty clear. If you, do, if you don't want to read in the Gospels, you can read in 1 John 3.8. Christ appeared to destroy uh, Satan and to destroy his works. John 12.31, of course. Hebrews 2.14-15, he appeared to destroy the one who had the power of death and who held the children of God in captivity to, through the fear of death. So he, he appeared to destroy the works of Satan. Notice in the, um, there's a, the, uh, particularly the exorcism of the Gadarene demoniacs. In the Matthew account of that, the terminology used is military encounter. So there's actually some technical terms. 
the Gadarene demoniacs came out to meet Jesus in battle. And the actual fight was rather anticlimactic because when they actually saw him, they were groveling at his feet. But, but what they said is, we know who you are, Jesus, the Holy One of God. Have you come before the time to destroy us? So they knew that their destruction was going to happen when he appeared. And they thought he was a little too early. His response was, shut up. It's actually one of the few Greek perfect imperatives in the New Testament. There's only two, and that's one of them, which is a very strong imperative saying, is, you know, be silent, but it's actually shut up you know, uh, in a very authoritative fashion. You know, I'm not, in other words, Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you what I'm up to. You know, you're my enemy. And, he, and then he sends them into the pigs and they are destroyed. So, the, uh, that's, the, that's, of course, the fulfillment of the gospel, the covenant of grace, but this is, uh, this is the great truths of Christianity that uh, is central to our interest and our hope. We don't believe in a powerless Lord. Are there any other questions before we turn to Noah? Okay, Noah. Now there are some preliminary things. I gave you the uh, passages in, in some of the places, but particularly the Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answers 30 through 36. And the first one there, question 30 in the Larger Catechism, I just want to point out that this terminology is important to our whole system. Doth God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God does not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery, into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant. Now notice that phrase, first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works. But of his mere love and mercy delivered his elect out of it and bringeth them into an estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. So you can say that in covenant theology there really are only two historic covenants, and I mean historic, the, the covenants in human history. There's the covenant of works, the first covenant with Adam, and there's the covenant of grace, which begins in Genesis 3.15 and extends into the new covenant, which is not another covenant in a sense. So that there is a unity to the covenant of grace throughout. So when we begin with the Noahic covenant, it's just entering into a discussion of an aspect of that one unified covenant, but we can talk about essential differences that are not differences which make it a different covenant absolutely, though. So there's a unity to our understanding of covenants so that our confessional documents talk about a first covenant and a second covenant and you see there's really no third covenant in a sense, even though we can talk about differences of administration of that covenant of grace. Now, one thing to settle before we look at Noah, the Noahic covenant, is, and this is not agreed upon by all our theologians, but I'm going to just take a choice because of our time and tell you my opinion, acknowledging that there are those who won't agree with me on this, and I just acknowledge that. I I differ, and I, but I want you to know that uh, I'm presenting a particular understanding of the Noahic revelation. Okay? 
The, the other viewpoint takes the, the uh, covenant revealed to Noah as really one covenant extending from chapters 6 to 9. So that the covenant with the revelation of the rainbow is the same covenant revealed in Genesis 6. There's really just one covenant. So some theologians like uh, Palmer Robertson in his book on the book table over there really talks about the Noahic covenant. In my opinion though, and in the opinion of others, I believe there are two Noahic covenants that accomplish different things. And I'm going to make that case with you briefly, but I just, uh, I'm not going to argue extensively on it, but I'm going to make that case now briefly. Let's look at the, uh, at the scriptures in Genesis 6. You know, of course, that the earth was so corrupt, God had planned to destroy all the earth. But Noah had found favor with the Lord, so God came to Noah and announced the destruction, the imminent destruction of all flesh through the flood. This is Genesis 6, 13 and following. He gives him a command to uh, build the ark. In verse 17, he says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind shall come to you to give them, keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Now verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. So that, Mo that Noah uh, demonstrated the favor that he had from God, but also his own righteousness. We see earlier in this chapter how Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is Genesis 6, 8. Uh, and also the fact that Noah's righteousness is explicitly uh, brought out, that he is righteous before the Lord. This is in Genesis 6, 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Notice the reiteration. In the Old Testament scriptures, reiteration is not accidental. It's when they underline something. So he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. In verse 7, verse 1, For the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So Noah's righteousness is underlined here, and it is his righteousness which is brought forward in the narrative and underlined for us, so that we see his righteousness is what brings God to him and says, I will establish my covenant with you. Now, in this covenant expressed in 6.18, there are a number of things to say. Let's just, let's just do a little word study first, and this is quite an important one, so I'll take a little bit of time, and then I'll get back to the other theme. In Genesis 6.18, uh, 
we read, and I'm reading the New American Standard here, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark. Now the word established there in English makes it sound like God is setting up a covenant, that he is hereby uh, inaugurating a covenant with Noah. But the term used is not the term ever used for initiating a covenant. The, the Hebrew term for initiating a covenant is pretty consistent, and it's the term cut. You perhaps know this already. The Hebrew idiom is to cut a covenant. Now, the exact origin of that isn't quite understood. They, there's been a lot of uh, speculation of it, partly because uh, they would sometimes cut animals in two when they inaugurated a covenant, and then one party would walk between them, symbolizing the curse, for covenant breaking. So they think that perhaps to cut a covenant comes from cutting the animals to symbolize the covenant making. Whatever the reason, that's a pretty consistent term used, actually very consistent term used, for inaugurating a covenant, to cut a covenant. But the term in Genesis 6.18 is not that word. For you Hebrew scholars, it's the hiphil of kum. So, hakim. It is to uh, a, a word not used really to mean start a covenant out or initiate a covenant, but rather it's used quite frequently with covenant for other reasons, particularly to uh, bring the effects of a covenant already established, bring the benefits of it into effect. An English word that perhaps is better to use would be implement or convey, or confirm. Now let me give you some passages to look up where this word kum uh, is used in the Hiphil with this meaning. It's found in Genesis 9.11 and 9.17, but it's also used in Genesis 17.7. This is in the giving of the sacrament of circumcision for the one covenant with Abram. There's only one covenant making with Abram in Genesis 15 when, when the smoking pot passes through the cut pieces of animals. But in Genesis 17, God issues the covenant sign of circumcision for the one covenant. We're going to deal with this later on. And the word is used there in Genesis 17, 7 when he says, And I will confirm my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And you see what that means is I will bring into effect, I will hold to it and you will receive the benefits of this covenant. It's not that he's going to initiate a new covenant with all of his seed and all of his descendants but he is going to bring them into the benefits of that covenant. Now in Genesis seventeen nineteen, God said no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. You see, God isn't saying, I will cut a new covenant with Isaac. He's saying, no, I am going to take the covenant I already have with you and implement it for Isaac as well bring him into the benefits of this covenant. 
Exodus 6.4, I also established my covenant with them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they dwelt as sojourners. Now you see what that means is, I am going to bring the benefits of that covenant I have and, and include the Israelite, the, the seed, into the covenant blessings and, and confirm them in it. In Genesis 26.3, Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give these lands and I will fulfill the oath with which I swore to Abraham your, your father. Fill there is the same word we're dealing with. This is Genesis 26.3. Notice that oath is used in place of covenant. It's because where you have an oath, you have a covenant. Well, there are many other places. Confirm the word. Uh, establish my word with you. Confirm my covenant with you. You, you really find it many times. Nehemiah, Kings, Jeremiah. I've got lots of places and examples I could bring up. And I'll only bring them up if you really make me. Uh, but I'd like to... Uh, conclude that the word in Genesis 6.18 suggests that there's already a covenant in place with Noah. And I think the evidence of that is in uh, 6.8 and 9. Noah walked with God. Noah was already in covenant with God. He was an elect believer who had placed his trust in that promise of Genesis 3.15. And God says, because you are walking with me and you are mine, I will implement with you the benefits of this covenant by you will enter into the ark. See, in, in 6.18, you can read that second phrase as a, re, as a result clause. Let's read it this way. But I will confirm my covenant with you so then you shall enter the ark or so that you shall enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You see, entering into the ark is the expression of the confirmation of that covenant. It's the result of it. It's what confirming the covenant consists of. Now in Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah. Now he hadn't forgotten him. It's a biblical phrase for he, he will implement the benefits that he had promised to him. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark and God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. You see, this is part of that covenant reaching its expression. So the point here is there's already a covenant in place with Noah. It is that promise in Genesis 3.15. Noah had already been included in that covenant. It's a covenant of grace, you see, already announced. And as a particular expression of grace within that covenant already established, God will provide this further benefit to Noah who walked with him that he will be delivered through this flood. Now the second thing in this verse to point out in Genesis 6:18, he says, I will confirm my covenant with you. And in Hebrew, 
they distinguish between U singular and U plural. And this is U singular. And throughout the narrative, up until Genesis 9, all of the dealings of God with Noah are with him in individually and particularly. It was his righteousness, and it's with him that he's confirming this covenant so that he will enter the ark along with his family. But it is Noah who is receiving the benefit of this covenant in particular. This is why I think this is a, the first Noahic covenant. This is a covenant with Noah only. It's not a new covenant. It's implementing the benefits of the covenant to Noah. Now there's a reason why the scripture makes this distinction. Now later on in chapter 9, God comes to Noah and his family after the flood and he says the same thing. I will confirm my covenant to you and in that case, it's plural. It's Noah and his whole family. And then the covenant, as a pre, the covenant benefits there, uh, include the promise of not delivering the world through water, judging the world through water again. And he sets up the sign of the rainbow. But uh, I would suggest that's the implementation of covenant in a new way in chapter nine. So that this really should be viewed as the initial. Uh, covenant, but it's with Noah in particular. Now I'm going to bring out the reason, uh, the benefits of understanding this in a moment, but I'd just like to pause and invite questions. Not everybody believes this, but I'm making the case. It, it's resting in particular at this point. I'm going to make some other points, but that it is, a, is not the inauguration of a new covenant, but bringing Noah special benefits of the covenant already in place. And that special benefit is that he will enter the ark, and then his family with him are added. But they're secondary beneficiaries. Oh, yeah. Okay. Gen Genesis... Uh, 17, 7, 17, 19. Oh, oh, excuse me. Uh, Genesis 15. Oh, boy, that's a good one. I don't, that's so common, I don't have those recorded. <laughs> um, yeah. That is, oh boy, he made a, let's see, wait a second. Okay, here's one, Psalm 50, verse 5. Who cut a covenant with me uh, by sacrifice. Gather to me my faithful ones who cut a covenant with me by sacrifice. So there's one place for you. Uh, these are just incidental in my notes because I was really looking at uh, and, and by the way that's just not in question by anybody that's, that's a pretty common but that's universally understood and I'll have to uh, you have it in appendix one okay six. good yes I gave you an appendix so on covenant uh, good good so that's in the back on page 18 things you do with covenant. 
That's just a miscellaneous collection of data on covenant that I threw in there. Yeah, there's some. But Genesis 15, this is the establishment of the covenant with Abraham. And later on, that's confirmed or conveyed to his descendants with this other word to establish or confirm. We're about, when is our break? Is it quarter after or 10.30? Okay, we got some time. Captain? Yes. Yes. Yeah, the question is, shouldn't we, shouldn't we see the benefits of the Noahic covenant here, and we'll call it the Noahic covenant, don't have a problem with that, here as really the benefits of the covenant of grace? And the answer is yes, and I'll get into that. The short answer is, what God is establishing here, I will call a microcosm of the covenant of grace. The whole package is given in a symbolic form. Noah is a picture of Christ, the savior of his household, delivering his people through judgment. And this is how the New Testament interprets him. And that's why this is this is this is why this is Noah himself. Noah is a picture of Christ by his righteousness saving his family. That's what I'm going to say. And we're going to get into that. I'm going to try to show it from Hebrews and elsewhere. Alan? Um, the Noahic covenant has been, I think, kind of a troublesome covenant that doesn't quite fit in, though, with the covenant of grace in some respects. Um, the sign of the covenant that comes later on is not something that's usually associated with uh, saving grace. Yes. Yes. The question is, isn't the Noahic covenant uh, to be interpreted as a covenant dealing with common grace to all of humanity, not as specifically a saving covenant of the covenant of grace? And the answer uh, that I will give is the covenant establishment in chapter 9 is separate. And it is a common grace arrangement. But it's separate from this covenant. There are two covenants here. This covenant is confirmed with Noah particularly, individually. I will establish or confirm my covenant with you, singular. And then in 9, after the flood, and the benefit of that covenant is saving himself and his family through the flood. That is specifically the benefit of this confirmation of the covenant. Then after the flood, God comes again to Noah and to all of his family and says specifically to all of his family, plural, I will confirm my covenant with you, plural, and with your descendants after you. This is Genesis 9.9. That's a different uh, implementation of the covenant, and that is the covenant of common grace. So I'm not differing from that interpretation in the end, but we have to get there.
Yes, it, you, it, it might be new things, you know me. I might be telling you something you haven't heard before. I'm not originating this, by the way. It's, it's been around. It's just not been common this century, perhaps. I don't live in this century. I hope you know that. <laughs> I tell people that, you know, my PhD, by the way, is in first century history, ancient history. And I tell the students all the time, I don't live in this. I live in the first century. It's much more pleasant to live then. <laughs> you know, Nero and <laughs> throwing Christians at the lions. You know. Okay. So God came to Noah, and the ground of that establishment of the covenant recorded in scripture and underlined is Noah's own righteousness the fact that he was blameless he was righteous before me those passages quoted in 6, 8, 9 and 7, 1 now Noah has already been a participant in the covenant of grace this is the, this is the point of that phrase Noah walked with God we, we, sh- we saw that earlier but his righteousness is underlined in this passage and it's picked up in other places in scripture we read in Second uh, Peter 2.5 if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven other persons when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly now notice how Peter underlines Noah there and the other seven persons are just included but the focus there is on Noah. In the ancient world, the old world before the new world after the flood, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Notice his righteousness is brought out by Peter. This is Second Peter 2.5. Along with seven other persons when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now Second Peter 3.6-7 through which the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So that's the old world that then was. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, having been kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now the point of Second Peter 3 here is to set up the world before Noah as being destroyed in an analogous way with a destruction awaiting this world. Now, of course, in a sense, it's not a different world. It's the same heavens and earth. But the world of people was completely destroyed back then through flood. Likewise, this world will be entirely destroyed through fire. So there's a comparison there. And the point of the comparison is the world of Noah showed us what the last judgment was all about utter destruction of the world God was presenting an utter destruction of the world to Noah but he was delivered along with seven others now in uh, second, excuse me, 1 Peter 3.18-22 for Christ also died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous notice substitution there that he might bring us to God Notice the benefit of the covenant, bringing us to God. 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. Notice the comparison there between Noah and Christ, the deliverance through the flood and the deliverance through us, through baptism. Now he brings this out even more particularly in the next verse, 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. There's another one of our good uh, Lordship of Christ verses. Now finally, a verse from Hebrews 11.7. This is the only verse in Hebrews 11 dealing with Noah. And he says, By faith Noah, when he was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, took heed and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he con- and this means through faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which comes by faith. Now, I believe the author of Hebrews is now interpreting those statements about Noah's own righteousness in Genesis 6 and 7.1. Noah's righteousness is underlined in those passages. But the author of Hebrews is saying that righteousness didn't save him eternally. He became an heir of the righteousness according to faith. And that's the same righteousness that comes through Christ, you see. This is actually a Pauline phrase inserted here in, in Hebrews so that Noah participated in the righteousness of Christ, as it were, by faith. He became an heir of the righteousness according to faith. So the passage in Genesis 6 doesn't say anything about Noah's faith. But Hebrews interprets that and says, because of his understanding of the covenant of grace, that Noah participated in the righteousness which is according to, to faith. Noah believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Is another way of saying that. That's how the author of Hebrews interprets that righteousness. So that Noah's eternal standing before God was only based on his faith and his becoming an heir of the righteousness of faith. And this is very important to see. This is the consistency of the scripture from Genesis 3 on. No one is saved by the covenant of works. You can't be saved by the covenant of works. This is starting, you see, to be unfolded for us. So when we understand the righteousness here in Genesis 6, we have to understand it as not saving him eternally from damnation. That's the point. This is not Noah being saved from uh, last judgment. And yet those New Testament passages suggest, and our text suggests, that God is saving Noah from the flood judgment because of his righteousness. And he confirms his covenant specifically with him, and he is the focus, and his righteousness is the focus. And seven other people are, uh, receive the benefit so that he saves his household. 
he becomes the savior of the household. Now when all this is put together, and also you think about how many times the ark has been pictured as a presentation of the church surviving the flood. This is primarily in Christian interpretation, but I think it's suggested by the analogy between the flood waters and baptism in 1 Peter 3. That, in, in my opinion, what God is doing here is setting up Noah as a type. Remember, we heard that term already in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Adam was a type of the coming one. Noah, too, is a type. He is a portrait for us, a presentation of what God will do in the covenant of grace eternally. He will bring a Savior based on his own righteousness to God's people to deliver them out of judgment. So that because of the righteousness of of one man, many will be saved from judgment. He's drawing a, a picture in crayon for us, basically, so that anybody could see at that time. And that's what this first covenant confirmation is all about, so that he delivers his household because of his own righteousness. As long as you see that it is a type, it is a portrait, it isn't that Noah is delivering himself and others eternally based on his righteousness. Because as time goes on, I mean, it, it becomes clearer and clearer in Scripture. No man can do this. Remember in, uh, is it Proverbs? Where a man cannot save his brother because of his own righteousness. There's a statement to that effect explicitly. No man can, from his own righteousness, save his brother from death. Except one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think that's what's happening. Time's up. No questions. <laughs> All right, just a few. We're going to talk about nine afterwards. Break. The Noah walked with God. And he was already included in the eternal covenant of grace and was a participant in the righteousness according to faith, is what Hebrews says of Noah. And he, when he walked with God, that's a statement in Scripture of a man who is in covenant with God and a participant in the covenant of grace, which had already been announced in Genesis 3.15. And other believers had already been identified very briefly, but identified in Genesis 5, the great line of Seth and Enoch, Enosh, etc. And Noah was one of them. The prophetic announcement of him by his father was that he would deliver us from our rest and toils. He's going to be the great one that comes to deliver us from the Adamic curse. This is Genesis 5.29. That's what his father pronounces about him. This one will give us rest from our work and the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So Noah will be, will be the great deliverer, the great savior looked forward to, the great seed of the woman. Well, he isn't, but he's a picture of him. 
So he himself participated in the covenant of grace. But the covenant actions of God with Noah in this section, I'm suggesting, was sketching out the whole program of the covenant of grace to God's people. So that you would see that what God plans to deliver us from judgment, final, last judgment, is that one man's righteousness will be given to us all and he will, be, he will deliver us from judgment. That's what I mean when I say that Noah is a type of Christ. He was saved through the floodwaters, not through eternal judgment. The floodwaters are temporal judgment which picture and are, and are seen in Scripture in the New Testament as portraying to us the character of cataclysmic judgment by God and corresponding to the last judgment. So you have to distinguish here the Noahic, the Noahic flood and the Noahic covenant uh, confirmation of God here is on the earthly plane and it's symbolizing the cataclysmic final judgment and the great events of eternity. And Noah becomes a participant in uh, salvation by grace through faith. But in his own life, he is showing us by God's direction, by establishing him uh, as a, you know, a, a, a sign of what God will do through Christ Jesus. They're all stunned. They all need coffee. 15-minute break. We'll come back.